Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me well? So uh, this morning, uh, well, welcome, everybody. Um, we're going to talk about a pretty somber topic, I guess. It's called A Christian's Call to Suffering. I'm sure everybody love, here loves suffering. <laughs> More suffering. More uh, suffering. I always... Everybody used to chuckle when uh, somebody says, <clears throat> I guess somebody in the prayer meeting, if somebody ever prays, oh, Lord, give us more <laughs> trials and tribulations. <laughs> like somebody will, somebody will always think, no, no, I don't want that. <laughs> 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 well, well, I guess uh, I forgot the clicker. Oh, thank you. But everybody good, doing good this morning? Yes, sir. All a week. Thank you. All right, it works. So, um,. So going into this, uh, it's, it's always uh, when we talk about suffering, we're always talking about the problem of pain. And I think this is a kind of a difficult topic to a certain extent because the problem of pain, it's, uh, it's such a broad topic and it's hard to cover in just uh, one sermon itself. So today I'll kind of cover a little bit. But I think in the beginning when we talk about the problem of pain, it's always interesting because if you have signed up to be a Christian thinking that uh, you'll, you'll make your life easier, I, I think you're pretty wrong. <laughs> or if you think, like, uh, I've done my, all the works, like, uh, for example, like, I read my Bible today, or if I, uh, if I bless somebody's heart or something like this, that God will do good for you. In the next few days or the next few months, will be uh, smooth sailing. You're also pretty wrong. Also. And the thing here, it's like uh, bad things does happen. And bad things happen to good people also. Well, I, I guess like a, a disclaimer here when you talk about good people. <laughs> That's right. So uh, many have left the faith, I think, because of this. Because it is a challenging issue. And you probably heard this. You heard people ask this question pretty frequently. It's, uh, why does a good God allow evil things to happen? Or you might hear another variation. If God is really good, why am I suffering? So hopefully, uh, today's message, I try to cover some of this topic. So the first point here we have is uh, trials lead to humility. And like, uh, again, if you have not known already, trials or suffering, they are inevitable. If you are a Christian, you probably have unknowingly signed up for this Fortunately or unfortunately. So let's take a look at John 16, verse 33. And it says here, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So even the Bible says, like, you will have trials and tribulations. You will suffer as long as you are a Christian. But like a, what you see here is like a, when you begin to follow Christ, we actually begin to invoke battle against Satan's kingdom. And let's, let's take a look at Ephesians 6, verse 12. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against powers of this world's darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I think a lot of this suffering they have, a lot of times we have to see past it. Because it's a lot of times, I guess most of the time, it's not the person that's causing you to suffer. It's not this, rather not the, uh, yeah, not the person. Because if you think about it, the, when we talk about person, we are all created in God's image. And so whatever God created is good, but we always have to look at the principalities and the powers that's behind whatever that's happening and it's the king, Satan's kingdom that's causing all the tr- troubles. It's sin that's causing all the trouble. But before we think it's scary, fighting against Satan, we have to remember it's a cleanup operation. So I think it's interesting because often in sports, when a team has overwhelming success, especially when it's a late game, like if you're in a basketball game or something like this, in this, probably the last 10 minutes, if one team is like a, having a big difference against the other team, what you often find is they will start standing up their second team, the second people, the not-so-great ones. And that, that's for a reason, because a lot of times it's there, because the team knows like, they won't lose, so might as well use this chance to train whoever is going to be their Knicks, their backup people. It's a good training session. And I'll say in some ways, suffering is kind of similar to in the Christian life. It's also kind of similar in that Christ has already won the battle. Like our winning margin, it's like infinitely greater. And so we kind of on this sweep up, clean up operation where we are standing here and Christ used this opportunity to train us up in sanctification. And so there's something we have to understand when it comes to suffering. Of course, nobody loves suffering. But suffering does bring us to a point of humility. But like, uh, things, something you have to make sure is that Satan is often strategic and is often not very lazy, unfortunately. <laughs> In fact, I would say like, if you continually mount attack on you constantly, day and night, like, over and over again. And I think it's, it's something interesting because... Um, when you're trying to run for God, you'll kind of see like sometimes there's not as much suffering, there's not as much trials. And if you think about it, it will make sense because a lot of times Satan would rather spend his time battling somebody that was like advancing the kingdom of God. So to a certain extent, sometimes I say if you have a lot of suffering, a lot of trials, sometimes it's a certain sign that you might be doing something right. <laughs> Of course, like a Satan, if he can cage you up, he will be the most happy. And sometimes I say it comes to this point where sometimes it's uh, the lazy of, or dangers of excessive comfort and enjoyment. And here I put the city of God. Because um, if you guys know uh, this, I guess like a, in the city of God, it's a St. Augustine writing. So uh, he kind of wrote this uh, book when Rome was being sacked in about 400, 410, 400, 410 by the Visigoth. So uh, at that point of time, all the Roman citizens, the pagans, they were blaming the Christians. They were saying, oh, it is the Christians' fault that like, Rome is falling because like, we are not sacrificing to our gods. 
and things like this. And then Augustine began to write. He said, in fact, it is the Christians who made it easier. He said, if without Christianity, we'll probably have been, we'll probably be set even worse. The, the enemy probably will just set fire in the whole, uh, whole of Rome. Uh, it is because of Christianity that everything's a little bit easier. But he also said something I thought that was interesting. Because he said to the pagans then, he said, like all of you guys, like, you are just enjoying your time watching the shows. And even, I think at a certain point, he even said, like, uh, in the past when Rome was being attacked, he said, oh, there are still people going to watch the shows, going to have time of enjoyment while Rome was being attacked by the enemy. He said, like, this addiction, like, uh, this, like, a... Uh, putting everything off and going to be in your comfort zone, this running away, he says it's detrimental. But I think that the other thing that he said that I really liked was that um, at the time, all, a lot of Christians were also devastated because they always thought Rome was the city of God. So Augustine said, it was the Christian's duty to pray and ask God for strength to endure these trials not spend time lamenting on the outcome of God's mysterious providence. And I think that's pretty helpful sometimes because I think a lot of times when we go through suffering or trials, we might think, oh God, is it a certain sin that I'm doing? Or God, is it something wrong that I'm doing here? But I think what Augustine said here is really true because it's, sometimes we shouldn't focus as much on the, the sin or the problem, but I should focus on praying, asking God for strength. We shouldn't waste time on thinking, oh, like this person does this, does this, this, this. Oh, maybe it's me. Oh, I'm bad in this, 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 this. But instead, we should pray to God and ask God, oh, God, give me the strength to overcome all this. And I think that's like a pretty wise and that's pretty important too. And um, let me see. I have to keep up with my slides. <laughs> But I think like, uh, when it comes to trials and sanctifications, trials experientially teaches us about God, and I think it, it sanctifies us like no other devices would. And you hear a lot of people sometimes they say some of the best thing that some of the best experiences with God they ever had was when they're in the midst of a trial or in the midst of a suffering. And I think that is the grace of God sometimes. I think this is also really true for myself also. Sometimes when I find I'm myself to be in the greatest time of suffering, I feel God the most. I actually hear God the most. I ex experience the most revelations. I experience God speaking through me, through His Word the most or so. And let's take a look at Romans 5, verse 3 to 4. It says, not only that, but rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I would say, for it is in suffering that unveils the blindness that we have towards our own sin. For the root of sin is pride, the root of virtue is humility. And it takes great humility to surrender ourselves to Christ. It is really learning to be solely dependent on God. 
I would say, how easy would it be each time if a trial or if you're at a time of suffering that we can come to a point of not kicking against the goats? So I'm, I'm not too sure if you guys are familiar with this term, kicking against the goat. So it's used in the Bible. A goat is a, kind of like this spear-looking spear thing. Like they, they used to use it to like a, when a cow doesn't want to move, they will poke it so that you will start moving. And uh, so, like, uh, a lot of times the Bible says, like, sometimes you kick against a goat. That means, like, uh, you're kicking against something that will hurt you. And so, when it comes to suffering, like, uh, like uh, what you see, a lot of times, we as humans, because we are fallen, because we have a sin nature, a lot of times what we do is we kind of kick against the goats. And when, when you talk about this, like, uh, something experiences, probably if you're in a time of, if you're angry at somebody, if you kick against the goats, it will be like if you keep thinking about it nonstop. And it's kind of interesting, like um, when you're angry at somebody or something, or when you're sad or depressed about something, it's almost a cycle. The more you think about it, the more it comes, start coming up, and the more ways you think about how to uh, do something malicious to that person. <clears throat> or if you're depressed, like the more depressed you are, the, the more ways you think that you can be depressed. Like the, the human mind is kind of interesting. Kind of a, you generate more ways to be angry. You might start with like a, maybe a 10% level anger, but when you start dwelling on it, it actually starts growing more and more and more. Or you might start with 10% of a depression, but when you start thinking about it, more and more and more, it, becomes, it starts growing and growing and growing. And this is the point where I kind of say it's like a, it, it is like kicking against the goats, where the more you think about it, the more it hurts you also. And I would say like a, when, when it comes to suffering, a lot of times the, the goal that God has is really for us to be dependent upon Him. And I would say it's not an easy process. If it, it was that easy that we don't need much trial, everything would be smooth sailing. But sometimes, like, the more we kick against God, the more we fight against God, like, the, the more this suffering will continue, and it won't stop. And a lot of times, like, when it ends, it's until we start giving ourselves, until we start surrendering to God. And I think it's kind of interesting, because I experienced this many times in my own life, too, when I faced with, like, a certain anger. And when you start giving it all up to God, there's this very strange, uh, almost like a mental shift. That's number one. And number two, there's like a, almost something in the background. The person don't seem so annoying anymore, suddenly. <laughs> and the problem doesn't seem as bad anymore. And it's a lot easier to go through once you have this like a mental shift of, oh God, I surrender all this onto you. But I also like to take, uh, for us to take note is that sometimes if you if you fight against God for too long, like sometimes God will let you have your way. And I would say that's sometimes the most dangerous place to be in. Because when, when you fight against God so hard, maybe you thought you might have won. Oh, God, oh, this like a trial. All this, all this suffering all disappears. But I would say sometimes it's because you leave you to your own destruction. And, and you have to fight really hard to get to that place, that point of, the place. So I would say like a, a place of humility before God is the starting point for the Holy Spirit to begin His work within our lives. And to get to this point of humility, it's pretty difficult sometimes. It takes time and it takes 
a lot of sacrifice. It takes putting down our pride. It takes like a surrendering to God. It takes seeking God to get to a point of humility. And, but when we get to humility, the good news is the Holy Spirit will begin working in our hearts. And when He works, He works miraculously. And when He works, He works in a way that nobody can ever work. No counselor can ever counsel you. I would say it's the mysteriousness of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit at the same time. Because when He works, He really works throughout and He changes everything from the inside out. And let's take a look at uh, Isaiah 66, verse 2. It says, All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And let's take a look at Psalm 51, verse 17, too. It says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And a lot of times in suffering, like we have to get to this point where we have a broken spirit. And what it means by a broken spirit, a broken spirit is when you are humble or you come before God and you say to God, Oh God, I can't do it anymore. It's up to you. I would say the thing that we probably fight against the most when it comes to suffering is our own pride in saying, Oh God, let me try myself. Maybe I might be able to uh, conjure up something, maybe... Uh, Maybe I have some talent that maybe be able to solve this problem without you. But often that is the problem there. Like, a, the, like God will bring you to a place. He'll help you to realize that you are powerless. But when you depend on Him, He will make all things possible. And point two, trials produces fruits. I would say when you allow the Holy Spirit to work in you, you will produce fruits that is worthy of repentance. And I would say the fruits are often the gauge of our repentance also. Let's take a look at Galatians 5, verse 22 to 23. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. So what do we mean by, by a fruit of spirit then? And what do we think of when we think of growing fruits? So I think it's kind of interesting when we think of growing fruits, when we think of gardening, when we think of planting, we see that a lot of times it takes nourishment. Like Amber and I, we, a lot of times we try to plant something, but we are not that great of a planter. Like whatever we plant, like the fruits are either small or they die. <laughs> and it's pretty challenging sometimes because when it comes to planting trees, fruit trees, like you have to give it a lot of care. Like you have to go every afternoon to give them some water. You have to make sure they have just enough water. You cannot have too much. A lot of the mystic that uh, we caused the plant to die in the early when we started out in gardening, it's just watering too much water that it gets soaked and the roots begin to rot. Or too little water, like it doesn't have enough nourishment and you'll die also. So two ways, like, a, like plants are pretty troublesome, <laughs> pretty time-consuming. So because you have to give the right amount of stuff, the right amount of water, you have to have the right kind of soil, you have to have enough sunlight. It's complicated. <laughs> 
So the, the main key is that it takes time, it takes nourishment, it takes cultivation. And I would say the Bible has a really rich word pictures when it comes to planting, when it comes to trees also. Let's take a look at Romans 11, verse 16 through 18. It says in verse 16, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so is, are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And so here we see like the Bible refers to us as a branch, but you also mentioned, you also mentioned about the first fruits and the root. And so let's take a look what that is, what that represents. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 to 23. And it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in its own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So we see here that the firstfruits and likewise the root is Christ himself. We are grafted into Christ. And interestingly enough, if you remember the Garden of Eden in Genesis, we remember there's two trees. the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life. So I believe that it's God's will to eventually actually give those three to Adam himself. Because you remember, like Adam was called to steward the garden. So I would say like eventually God's gift to Adam will be these two trees. But when he partook of those two trees, it was uh, too early. He was, he was not ready to partake of it. Because I would say like uh, the Garden of Eden and having Adam steward this garden, it's a proving ground for Adam. It's, in some ways, it's kind of uh, our time on earth. It's similar in this sense. Our time on earth, it's our proving ground to, to a certain degree. But however, we know in this uh, regard, Adam has failed. And the Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, like uh, I'll just talk about it, for as in Adam all died. So nevertheless, nevertheless, this is not the end of the story. As we know, as it became evident that the means of fulfilling the dominion mandate will be supplied through Christ and by us grafting into him. And we also begin to look in the latter part of our 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. It says, So in Christ all will be made alive. So what does the tree symbolize then? So I would say the tree of good and evil, it kind of symbolizes a righteous judge. Like knowing good and evil allows you to be able to judge what is good and what is wrong. But when Adam partook of it, it was too early, and he did not know how to handle all of this. And the other one, the tree of life, it is for conquering death. And so I think it's kind of amazing to some extent because uh, what we see later, Christ was the righteous judge and Christ was the life. And we also see in Revelations later, 
that it says, uh, Revelation 22, verse 1 through 2, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, there's a tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So you see, like a, we are to partake of this life that Christ has won for us. And whatever you have won, like we are to become a, like Him in this regard. And we are also to become a righteous judge to the nations. And if Christ was the root, then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the lifeblood. The Holy Spirit is the one that will send the, all the nourishment into us because we are the branches here. The nourishing water, the minerals that come forth from the fruit, from the roots, from Christ, is delivered through the Holy Spirit into us. And all this will cause us to grow spiritual fruits. And it doesn't stop, stop there, as in the fruits, there are seeds also. And everybody know what a seed does. Like when, when you start begin, when you begin to plant a seed, you will grow and you have more seeds, and you plant all those seeds, and it will grow and grow and grow. And more and more trees and more and more fruits will begin to produce. And that's how it's a life of a Christian. That when the Holy Spirit begins to effect a change in you, when you begin to produce all these fruits of the Spirit, it should be evident to a certain extent that people should see your fruits. And when people see your fruits, and the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit also begins to work in their lives. And that's how you multiply. But I also want to take note on the leaves. In uh, the verse in Revelation just now, it says, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And if you think about trees, tree, like uh, when you think about trees, they have leaves, and leaves provide shade to the wild animals. And because, like, uh, you know, like, uh, the sun is hot, without uh, leaves, without trees, without a shade, you get dehydrated pretty quickly. So I remember um, I, when I was in Singapore in the military, like, Singapore is so hot. I so so hot. <laughs> I remember, but the good thing is there's a lot of trees, and the trees a lot of times they provide shade and provide comfort too. And remember when I was in military, there was this patch of land that doesn't have any trees at all, and you have like the biggest guys with like the big muscles, like uh, because of their muscles they consume a lot of energy, <laughs> and so it's interesting because they are the first one to wear out because of the sun. Like the sun shine on them so hardly that they become to perspire. They're like, oh, I'm so tired. I need food. <laughs> then on the opposite side, you have those that are really skinny too. Also, same story. Also, like, uh, that's a, but theirs is a little bit different <laughs> because they're skinny and they're small. The sun shine on them. They're like, oh, so hot. Uh, I already don't have much food. And I don't have enough energy already. Now the sun is taking all my energy even worse. And so I think it's kind of interesting because like, uh, Christ called us to be leaves. And when we produce fruit and we produce a tree, we, there's also leaves. And these leaves are for the healing of the nations. And these leaves provide shade to the wild animals. And when we think of sun in the Bible context, a lot of times the sun, it's the judgment from God. So what it means here is, and the, uh, the other thing is the wild animals, a lot of times it represents the people, where the usually non-Christians. And so us Christians, we, 
we call our barrier between the living and the dead, between God and the non-believers. Like it's, it's our role that we provide shade, that we provide a cover for the judgment of God. We stand between them. We stand in this gap that is between them. We bring the dead into the living And I would say, in summary, that, that means like a God has placed us as the ones that will medi- mediate the judgment of God on the nations and the ones to bring restoration onto the land. I think, isn't that what a great calling that we have? <laughs> so coming back to fruits, uh, contrary to the fruit of the Spirit, that is also the fruit of the flesh. You remember just now I say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, but there's also the fruit of the flesh. A lot of times it's like anger, jealousy. And let's take a look at uh, Galatians 5, verse 16 to 21. It says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The acts of flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and sorcery. Hatred, discord, jealousy, and rage. Rivalries, division, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we see here where we begin to gratify our desires. The law of God will persist in the sense that Whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow into jealousy, if you sow into impurity, like you will reap all this stuff too. If you sow into hatred, you will reap hatred and you'll reap it bountifully. So take a, let's take a look at Galatians 6, verse 7 through 8 also. It says, Do not be deceived when God is not mocked. Whatever man sows, he will reap in return. The one who sows to please his flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And also, let's take a look at Romans 8, verse 18 to 26. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not comparable to the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits eager in eager expectation for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not by its own will, but because of the one who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until the present time. Not only that, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that's not sin is not hope, it's no hope at all. Who hopes for what they can see already? But we hope for what we do not see, do not yet see, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know how we ought to pray, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans too deep for words. And He who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
And let's move to the last point. It says here, trials precedes joy. And I would say like uh, this is uh, the good part of all this in some ways. It's a more easier part when it comes to suffering. So um, I remember uh, each time I watch the Olympics, or the Oscars, or, or some uh, competition, like some big sporting competition. What you see here is a lot of times the winners, the people who got first, or even second, usually first, they are really emotional. Uh, you see them cry a lot of times. And it's especially true for those who have failed in the previous years. Like those who was like a, got disqualified for the past few years, and finally that one year they won, the gold medal in the Olympics, like you see them, like they're like shouting for joy and they'll be crying at the same time. It's a pretty crazy emotion to be happy and also to cry, I guess, the tears of joy. I would say like, uh, because like, uh, when, a lot of times when these athletes in their previous years, when they, when they fail, they, they are all, you also see their face, they're always in despair. Like especially when they get disqualified because they're waiting for like four years. Then finally when they're able to compete, like they made some small little mistake and they got disqualified. Like it's, it's really depressing. And you see their face, their face shows everything. It's like, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> but I would say like for many of these athletes, you see them year after year. I would say like all the failures they have, all the suffering they have, not only it depresses them at the moment, but it also motivates them. It makes them want to win the gold medal the next year. And it actually fuels their motivation. And you might ask, like, uh, why? Because I would say, like, uh, um, like it's kind of natural, like uh, when you start failing for many years, like uh, you really want this, like uh, this longing grows more and more. But also say, like uh, when they when they actually won this medal, when they actually won this uh, gold medal or anything like this, like uh, you you see, uh, I I thought I think it's kind of interesting. I'm not too sure, but I I think what they think of when they really stand at the podium, what they think of when they hold the medal. And what they think of when they start having tears, when they start crying, is that whatever is flooding to, into their minds at a point of time was the pain in the journey to get to the point where they are. And they probably thought of, uh, at the point when they're standing at the podium, they probably think of oh, all this suffering, all this thing I've been through, all this work I've put in, it's worth it for this very moment. And so, friends, like how we ought to be like an athlete in this regard, in their persistence, in their endurance, in their hoping for the future, and hoping for whatever the goal that was going to be set before them, the joy that's going to be set before them. And I would say this is, in some ways, it's a natural revelation that God has placed into the world. Because Christ himself, remember, like when he died on the cross, he said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And let's take a look at Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 2. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, 
And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And you see here, our Lord considered it his joy in being condescended, in being mistreated, in being magdalene, and in being tortured when he thought about you. And in the historical narrative of Israel, it, I would say it pains God more than anything to see his people suffer year after year, day after day, night after night. And to a certain extent, it's kind of like this athlete, it's kind of like this Olympian Christ saw the joy that was coming. He saw the joy of eternal communion with you, with all of us. And he said at the point of time on his death, it's all worth it. And you see, I think it's kind of amazing because the prize that he's going to receive, it's us. And in the same way, the prize that we are receiving is Christ. So as we go through seasons of trials, let us remember that nothing is too great for our Lord. In fact, He is our model to which we can imitate, which we can place our hope in, and though hope differs, make the heart sick. But the victory that will come in its place, it's much greater. And this victory lets us remember that it's secured by our Lord, and it's in, in, inevitable when we rightly place our hope and trust in, and love in Christ. So t- let us take a look at uh, Hebrews 12, verse 3 to 15. It says, uh, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son who him receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have, we have had earthly fathers of earthly father who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the fathers of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the path for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And so let's also take a look at Romans 12, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And James, verse 1 to 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And so, friends, if you have a trial, fear not and worry not, but place your hope in Christ, for he will not disappoint you. You might tell me, I cannot fight this feeling, I cannot erase these thoughts, but I'll admonish you in this way to say we have to take an active stance here. And when I say like, uh, taking an active stance, like, uh, in, in times of suffering, like, it's, we have to be active. You, you cannot just be passive. You are passive all the time. Like uh, what you'll find, it's, these thoughts will invade your mind you're, and you'll overtake you. But instead, we have to be active. I would say active in the sense is number one here. It's saying we have to take every thought captive. Everything starts with the mind. And let's take a look at 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5 through 6. It says here, we destroy every argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. And the next thing that we have to do is, I would say it's called the sacrifice of praise. So I don't know for you guys, like uh, I love praising and worshiping God. And I find sometimes like uh, the best times of worship and praise that I have it's when I'm in, going through a period of suffering. Like you feel God a lot more. Like all the words begin to pop out. When, when all those songs, lyrics that say God's faithfulness, God's goodness, it became suddenly a lot more real at a point of time. And it begins to invade your heart. It begins to dwell in there. And you begin to think a lot about the lyrics a lot more than usual. And the nice thing about Sunday worship as today is, it's when we sing together in the congregation, you, sometimes you can be silent too. You can hear what other people are singing. And sometimes it almost feels as if that is God speaking to you at that point of time. And it can be pretty comforting sometimes. But I would say that the most challenging part a lot of times is getting through this barrier. Because when you're in a time of suffering, a time of trials, sometimes the hardest part is to come to a point of wanting to worship God, wanting to praise Him. And that is pretty challenging sometimes because all in your mind, everything you're thinking of is, oh, like what's going to happen next? Oh, like, a, oh, there's so much trouble. Like, a, what if I don't take care of this? What, what, this will happen, that will happen. But sometimes it's to calm our hearts down and to begin to realize that God can do all these things. And to begin to calm our heart down, hearts down, to begin to enjoy God and give all these things to Him. And sometimes you will say, like, uh, when you talk about the sacrifice of praise, why is it a sacrifice? And is it in this very manner? Because sometimes praising God does take sacrifice on your part to a certain extent. Praising and worship God is not, sometimes not so easy in that you can be so happy all the time to praise God. Sometimes it takes a little bit. It takes your, your mind, tell, it takes yourself telling yourself that, oh God, like, I will stop thinking about all these troubles, but I will focus on you. I will give, lift these things all up to you, but I will instead praise your name. I will not dwell on my troubles. I will not dwell on my anger. I will dwell on your goodness. 
And this, I would say, is the sacrifice of praise. And I would say God is faithful when you begin to give him a sacrifice of praise. When you begin to praise and worship him in hard times, you will receive peace from him. And you will receive a joy that's unexplainable sometimes. And the third thing is to receive the joy of the Lord. Uh, Greg always used this example that I, I really like. Uh, he says, um, sometimes grace is uh, it's kind of like a present. And sometimes God gives you this present, but it takes work to actually open this present. It, it's almost like Christmas. If you are, if you are in, during Christmas, if you have lots of gifts, but you don't open them, you don't know what they are, then you begin to say, oh, I, I didn't receive anything great this year. Like, that's a problem, man, because you didn't even know what you received at the first place. Like, you didn't even open it. So I say grace and receiving the joy of the Lord is sometimes similar to, like, you have to actually go and actually take the first step to tear up this present, tear up the wrapping paper. And uh, I remember a lot of times, sometimes people play pranks and when it comes to presents, they wrap, it, they wrap it up in boxes after boxes after boxes <laughs> in like layers and layers of wrapping paper. They really make you work for your present. <laughs> and sometimes in this sense, I don't think like a, a God is so cruel that he'll give you like a layers and layers of wrapping paper. But rather, I think like, it's us. Like, we have to take the first step to actually go and open the present. And take a look at uh, ne- Nehemiah 8 verse 10 in part B. It says, do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And you see here, like, a, the, God's joy will become our strength as we begin to trust in him. And when you begin to trust in the Lord, a lot of times like, uh, when you have a true faith and you have a true trust in Him, your problems in some ways go away because you begin to surrender all these things up to Him. And when you begin, especially when you begin to hit your point where you cannot do any more by yourself, where it takes a miracle, and sometimes I would say like, it's very joyful when God begins to show you a miracle. Like you're saying, oh, hallelujah, <laughs> so great. <laughs> but you see, it takes this uh, effort to actually go and receive this joy. It takes effort to actually go trust in Him sometimes. So as I come to my conclusion today, so answering this question is, if God is really good, then why am I suffering? I would say sin, possibly, but not necessarily. If you guys remember Job, it says in the Bible, like a, he's a righteous man, but God let him go through all the trials, all the troubles, so that he may be sanctified even more. But I would say like a, rather than focus on the sin itself, let us focus on sanctification. I know it's kind of a small little change of word, but I think this also kind of changes our mentality too. Because sin, when we think about sin, it often deals with punishment. It often deals with something negative as, as if we have failed or something. But when we think about sanctification, we are talking about inheritance. We are talking about sonship. We are talking about being children. We are talking about enduring, endurance, persevering. Enduring. We are talking about there's a prize to receive. 
So we are focusing less on the punishment, but we are focusing more on the journey towards obtaining Christ, towards imitating Christ even more. And I would say that change of mentality helps a lot, a lot of times. And so uh, with uh, the question, if God is really good, why am I suffering? I would say when, when, the other thing I would like to point out is like when we deal with suffering, it is a difficult topic. Like imagine somebody, if they lose their children, like at the point that that happened, like nothing will comfort them, like no other words will comfort them. But sometimes like it's only, you get to the point of only, only God can do a miracle. Only God can begin to change their heart inside. But I would say God is still good. A lot of times it's because of our lack of foresight, because we don't know everything. I remember uh, there was once uh, this story uh, about this uh, Christian couple in World War II, I believe. Uh, so I think the, um, the Nazis were invading them, and they found them. So the Nazis were trying to bury them alive. So I thought it was kind of uh, interesting because uh, while the Nazis were burying them, they were singing songs of praise and worship. And uh, like some people might say, oh, what's the justice here? Like, why did God not do anything? Uh, eventually, he died also. They got buried alive. But I thought sometimes, like, because we don't see everything, we don't see the whole picture, we don't know. Because like, uh, I remember somebody saying this, uh, eventually with this story, those who were burying those, like, the Christians alive, like they themselves eventually became Christians. And sometimes we don't see uh, the seeds that we are planting. We don't know the whole extent. We only see the bad part that's happening. And I, I think it's, uh, it's true for our church history in the same way too. A lot of times we, are, we focus, oh, oh the, it's like a, the world is getting darker and darker. But when we look at the bigger chunk of stuff, like the, the world has been better. It never has been better than now. Like when it comes to uh, medical, all the sciences, like people are living a lot longer, people are living a lot more comfortable, and like we have a lot more opportunity to preach the gospel of God. We have social media, we have media, we are able to spread the word of God a lot more quickly than before. And I would say in some ways, if you look at this big chunk of history over time, you see the progression of Christianity getting more and more. And so it's the same thing with our suffering too. It's always a challenging thing when it comes to addressing suffering in somebody else's life. If you tell them, oh, God is doing this and it's good. And at the point of time for them, it's really difficult because like all they can see is that small little chunk. But I would say it's really God's word. That's why sometimes when people are suffering, it takes a lot more. Rather than us speaking to them, it takes us praying for them too. Because it's only sometimes, it's only one of those things where God can begin to change their heart, begin to help them to see the expanded scope of what He's doing. And sometimes you don't, you don't really see that until you are in heaven too. But I think like in the day that we go to heaven, we'll be with all joy. And we begin to realize everything. Oh, I finally see what I've done now. It's for this and this. So uh, again, no easy solution with walking through pain. 
But I know some of the things that help. It's knowing God's love for us. It really helps. Because like a God really creates a safety net when we have, when we know about his love, we know that he will not fail us. Like we are more free to roam. We know that we won't get into like a crazy trouble because God is there for us. And I would say uh, the next one is also humbling ourselves and allowing the Holy Spirit to do his work within our lives. Because like I say, like if we keep kicking against the goats, like we will suffer even more. And also to continue on to have hope in Christ. And sometimes like, there's one of the things I would say, when you start to lose all hope, like it, it's, it gets really, really challenging. Because when you lose hope, you feel like the situation becomes impossible. And especially when you begin to hope in something that's temporary, when you begin to hope in processes, when you begin to put your hope in uh, items, begin to put your hope in your own strength, and when that, be- that begins to fail, yeah, you will fall away. But instead, I would say, that's hope in Christ, because Christ will never fail. And the other thing that's really helpful, it's knowing the means of grace. The Word, the Church, and the Spirit, because the community, the Church, will encourage you in this kind of times. They will pray for you, and it's always helpful to know people are praying for you all the time. And the Word of God will admonish you to begin to remember what He is doing, and the Spirit of God will transform your heart from the inside out. And so remember, let's take an active stance. If any of you guys here are in times of suffering, let's continue to take an active stance in your thought life to capture, to put every thought in captive so that they will not roam, but destroy every argument that will come against yourself with the word of God saying that he is faithful. Oh, I'm angry, but God is good. Oh, I'm depressed, but God loves me. Like destroy every argument with the word of God. And continue on to praise God even in times of trouble. And also receive the joy that God is going to give to us. And so with this, we are ending at 10.28. You got two minutes for coffee.